Rumi, your words of life. Lord, as Jesus taught us the parable of the seed and the sower, allow this seed to be true living seeds of your word, the truth. And it's a word in season, Lord. It's a living seed. It's a rain of manna from heaven. It's the word of the Lord, what God is speaking tonight. Whether this will go out as those living seeds of truth sown into good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. If you could bring this mic down just one little notch. And Lord, let this word go out and be like light shining forth that will dispel any darkness, any lies, anything that's just religious but it's not you, things that are like maybe traditions of men or pet doctrines and things that are not biblical. But they pass down generations. Lord, that your light of truth would dispel that, expose those things and clear that junk out. Lord, things that um, are just uh, different deceptions, things that are worldly, um, even maybe the way people's been raised, and it's not right, but that's just the mentality of, of maybe their family. But Lord, let the light of your truth come in and help to expose things and clear it out and bring truth, bring revelation. Let there be a washing of the water. Lord, let your word be a hammer that breaks down every stronghold and lie of the enemy and a sword that cuts away what needs to go. We bless you, Lord, as you come speak through me. Let there be a mighty anointing and let everything be accomplished, Lord, through this time in the word that your will be done. We bless you and we commit it to you now in Jesus' name. All right, so I've been continuing this series on communion Hebrew roots. Last week we talked about Hanukkah and we learned about God's intervention during the times of extreme spiritual warfare and being a unique people set apart unto God. We have a series called Seduction of, Seductions of Satan series in which we deal with spiritual warfare and deliverance more in depth. So if you want to you know, get more into that understanding, you can go to our website and check that out. Um, I'll go through this tonight, just things God's laid on my heart. But the first thing I want to talk about is prophecy. Again, just to put this out there, because I'm not going to talk a lot about end-time prophecy at all tonight. It's very little. But I did a series, and it was quite extensive, called the Spine of Prophecy series, in which we covered um, a lot about end-time prophecy. So if you're interested in understanding what the Bible talks about in the latter days will happen, I encourage you to go listen to those. And we're living in the last days, and we need to have some understanding about what the Bible says in the days that we're living, okay? So here's some things. In regards to the seven major feasts that God gave, there was these, um, the way that I have them here, you'll see that, that the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, is right in the middle. But you'll see in the first line here I put together Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits. Now they're three different feasts, but they're right together. And we know that Jesus actually died on Passover that day. And that he was buried in the tomb during Unleavened Bread. Not the day before Unleavened Bread, not the day, you know, like after the whole feast was over. He was in the tomb during Unleavened Bread. And he raised from the dead on the day first fruits. And so those feasts were fulfilled at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The next feast, Jesus was appearing to people during the time called the counting of the Omer time, leading up to Pentecost. But we know the story of Pentecost, Shavuot, and how the Holy Spirit fell, 
and God, it was the birthing of the church. Okay, that was when the Spirit of God came upon the church. And that's how God birthed the church into the world and released his people. But he knew that we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Feast of Pentecost, prophetically speaking, was fulfilled 2,000 years ago when the Holy Spirit fell. The next feast will be Yom Teruah in this prophetic timeline, which is the Feast of Trumpets. This has to do with the rapture of the Bride of Christ. So Yom Teruah is a very significant feast. I'll, I'll deal with that another time. I'm not preaching on that tonight, but it is what trumpets, it has to do with the rapture. It has to do with the catching away. And this is going to be a transitional time because at the catching away of God's people, the bride of Christ, those that's made themselves ready, okay? not everybody that goes to church, not everybody that's religious, not everybody that even calls themselves a Christian, but those that are the real deal, okay, those that know the Lord and live the life, there's going to be a catching away. And when that happens, there's going to be a transition. And God is going to go back to dealing more with Israel I can't get into this tonight, but for the sake of it making sense, um, Daniel prophesied 70 weeks. 69 weeks were fulfilled between Daniel's time and Christ's coming. And it's like God pushed pause. Because then um, the Lord began, because Israel rejected the gospel and rejected Christ as their Messiah, the Lord released this out to the Gentiles, and this has gone to the whole world. But when that dispensation uh, that we know we call the church age, that's going to be coming to a closing time, not completely, but it's going to come to a closing time at the rapture. And then God is going to kind of push unpause, if you will, and he's going to finish that 70th week, the last week of Daniel's prophecy, which we know in Christianity we call the days of tribulation. But the Bible also calls it the days of Jacob's trouble. And the reason why it's called the days of Jacob's trouble is because it's dealing primarily with Israel. Once God finishes this church age time and the bride is caught away, there's still going to be people getting saved. There's still going to be a lot going on. But it's going to, the world's going to enter that tribulation time. And the days of Jacob's trouble, it's called that because God's going to allow Israel to go through some very difficult times to kind of break that nation down and do a cleansing in that nation to prepare them for the coming of Christ. And so that is prophetic. So Yom Teruah is prophetic of the rapture. The Yom Kippur, which is a time right now where people fast and they pray, they repent, they get things right with God. This is going to be um, fulfilled with the tribulation. And so, or the days of Jacob's trouble, whatever you want to call it. But that Yom Kippur feast speaks of that difficult time. And then finally, Sukkot, which is tabernacles, this will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back to the earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. All right, so let me say that one more time. The spring feasts have already been fulfilled. So now we're looking at the fall feast. And it's interesting, the spring feast, and then there's kind of this long interval during the summer. And that's what we've had during the church age. But the fall feasts are to come. The first one, the trumpets, the rapture, the catching away. The second feast, Yom Kippur, fasting and repentance. It's going to be the times of Jacob's trouble. Great difficulty for Israel, great difficulty in the world. 
The bride that's made herself ready will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But the earth is going to go through turmoil. And then you have the final feast, Sukkot, Tabernacles. This is where Jesus comes to tabernacle on the earth and rule and reign. He's going to reign out of Jerusalem for a thousand years to prepare for the coming of the new Jerusalem and the Father coming down. So right now, we're in a time when the Holy Spirit is trying to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And when Jesus comes, Jesus is going to spend a thousand years preparing for the coming of the Father. The new Jerusalem coming down. The Bible says that God will dwell with man, man with God forever. And so we have this time that we're living in. We need to understand biblical prophecy and understand what's going on. And so right now in the day and time that we live, we're living at a time where the church age is starting to come to a close. What the Bible called the end times or the the days that would be like birth pains, okay? We're living in those days. All the things that Jesus prophesied, we're seeing everything unfold. Even some crazy things that you would have never thought. But all of it is coming to the surface. And we're seeing it begin to manifest in the earth. And so tonight I want to deal with tabernacles, Sukkot. I want to deal not with it from a pro- prophetic sense that when Jesus comes to rule and reign. How many of you guys look forward to that day? You know, the Satan's going to be bound and his forces are going to be bound for that time. And, man, it's going to be a glorious time. It's going to be paradise on earth and Jesus comes to reign. He's going to bring all the nations under subjection, under his authority. And he's going to separate the sheep and goat nations. Well, you know all this. I've taught you all this. But, but it's going to be a glorious time. You know, people are not going to be getting sick like they did before. As a matter of fact, the trees that are going to be there in Israel, people are going to be able to go there, and it says that these trees of life or whatever, their leaves are for the healing of the nations. And so there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be different. Um, many will have glorified bodies. And it's just going to be a time that's going to be similar to the Garden of Eden that the earth is going to revert back to before it became cursed. But I want to deal with Sukkot more from a perspective of God's heart to dwell among his people. But this is where uh, I just feel, I'm just going to kind of flow with the Holy Spirit. I don't actually have that many notes tonight, but this is where it takes humility. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And many times what I was trying to say in past sermons, I don't know that I got this across, but down through the ages, down through the church age, you see the institutionalized church, but it would always look down its nose at the remnant. Those that really knew God and knew the word and loved God, and they were, they were really God's real people, actually. But they would always look down their nose at them like they were superior and better. And so if you're going to really go after God with all your heart, keep this in mind. There has to be a humility. Because people that look down their nose at others for different reasons, they feel superior, they feel like they're better than them and all that, and they just kind of have a pride issue. Uh, They'll see somebody fall out, shaking, crying, whatever, and they just, you know, uh, that's the reason why (laughs) they're getting touched and maybe others aren't is goes back to this issue. If we'll be humble and hungry, I remember Steve Hill used to say, if you have a real hunger for God, you won't be preoccupied with what other people think. You're going to go after him even if you look like a fool. 
in the eyes of others. So humility is the key to receive God's grace. That you quit caring about what other people think. It's very arrogant to care about what other people think. Very prideful. That we don't care any longer about, you know, if people are watching us get touched by God or praise and worship or whatever. Or witnessing. We, don't, we shy back from witnessing because we don't want to be rejected. Come on. They're not rejecting us. They're rejecting Christ in the first place. But that all that preoccupation with self, self-centered, God will shake all that. He'll deal with stuff like that. Now, I'm saying all that because the Lord is wanting River of Life, by and large, to go deep into his glory, into his manifest presence. But it's going to take humility. Because Lucifer was even in the glory before he fell. But what made Lucifer fall and what made Lucifer turn into a devil was pride. He was lifted up with iniquity and pride within him. All right, so we talk about the Lord coming to tabernacle. All right, so in John, John chapter 1, the Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. But the word dwelled, go look this up, it translates actually tabernacled among us. So Jesus, many people believe Jesus was probably born around the Feast of Tabernacles and not really what we know as Christmas, but nonetheless, whatever. But the Lord came down to tabernacle among men. How many of you guys know that in the Garden of Eden we see God's heart and God's heart has always been for him to come walk among people and to spend time with people. God had heaven full of all kinds of angels, but he created man in his image, his likeness, and he would come down into that garden and he would walk with them in the cool of the day. And God didn't want just butlers and maids and servants, he wanted a family. He wanted people that he could come down and talk to and spend time with. And so God's heart has always been to dwell among his people. But people began to, get, obviously Adam and Eve sinned, and, and you know, sin began to increase in the earth. And because of sin, there became this great chasm between God and man. But even when God called Abraham, and he had to begin with a man to create a nation... But what's the first thing that God does when he brings Israel out of Egypt was he created a tabernacle where God could come dwell again among men. That's the first thing that God did with the nation of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt was to create a tabernacle so that his glory could come in among them. And you see God's heart for this. And I believe that more than anything else, that this is what the Feast of Tabernacles speaks of, is God's heart to dwell among men. And that's why God sent His Son Jesus in the likeness of sinful men to die, so that the separation that we had with God, that all of that separation could be washed away and removed, so that once again, God could dwell with men. That his Holy Spirit, and let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is not a thing, he's a person. That the person of the Godhead, the Spirit of God, could come live within us, and we could be the tabernacle of the Spirit of God. And when we pray and we spend time with him, there's a fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And there's, there's a relationship we develop with God, and that's what the Lord's looking for. 
The greatest enemy that Jesus had when he walked the earth was not the sinners. It was the religious. Because the religious did not accept him. And the religious to this day really don't accept Christ. And they don't want that relationship. That's the thing. Religion isn't going to save anybody. It's a relationship. Being religious, you can go to church your whole life. You can be real active in church. You know, there's people that have stories like that. But until somebody really is born again and comes into a relationship with the Lord, they're not truly saved. They're just religious. So whether they're religious in Episcopal church, like my mother talks about, or Catholic church or whatever, they're going to have to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so when God, when people come to accept Christ as their Savior, God is looking for a relationship. And out of that relationship, now God is saying, I will give you a new heart. Where once you had a heart that was like a stone, I will soften and give you a new heart that you can um, feel my spirit and you can be led by my spirit and I can convict you. And he takes that stony heart and gives us a heart of flesh. And God says, no longer will circumcision be an outward physical thing, but now circumcision will be of the heart that I will circumcise your heart. I will change your heart. And he said, I will take my word and I'll write it upon the tables of your heart. The true change that needs to come in all of us begins on the inside. If you try to go from the outside in, you're always going to be frustrated. But if you'll let God change you from the inside out, that is going to be where true change happens. God's got to give us a new heart. And then he's got to help give us a new mind, the renewing of the mind. God is wanting to dwell with men. And I think about the story of Enoch. We don't know a lot about him in the Bible. There's uh, you know, extra biblical writings, but you can't really take that, except with a grain of salt, obviously. But in the Bible, it just simply says with Enoch, he walked with God, and then he was gone. But if you read it, the Amplifier says he habitually walked with God. It became something that he just did all the time. He just walked and talked with the Lord. And there's something about, this is recently been on my mind um, about the glory but you know in the garden of eden adam and eve lived in that glory presence of god and they would have never died in that glory but once they were removed out of that glory realm and they could no longer eat from the knowledge of the or the tree of life they were removed out of that heaven presence they obviously began to die but there was so much of that glory still in adam It took him around 900 years to die. Isn't that amazing? But see, the glory of God is what brings the change. And I wonder, as much as Enoch walked with God, and God's presence was probably in his life, that maybe God had to take him. How long would the guy have lived? Think about it. Same with Moses. Moses was, read the Bible. Moses was in good health. God just said, okay, you fulfilled your purpose now now you're going to die. And, and it, God spoke that, and, and he died. But, but Moses, it says he was in great health. God had to take him when it was his time. There's something about that glory realm that's amazing. All right, so this is where I'm coming from when I talk about tabernacles, that God come tabernacle among us. A lot of people don't understand. I mean, very few people that I, I see today 
understand the glory of God. Not that I do. I think that I at least understand some about it because I've studied it for so many years. But the glory is God's manifest presence among his people. And we know that God is... And let me say this because we know that God's everywhere in respect of he knows everything, he's everywhere. Remember, go to heaven, I'm there. You go to hell, I'm there, I'm everywhere. But there's a big difference between that and God's manifest presence. His manifest presence is not everywhere. In fact, it's not in too many places. But his manifest glory coming in where you can sense that presence of God, that deep, rich presence of God. That's what I'm talking about. That's the glory. And so I remember one time, I've, I've got prayer so many times in revival and, and over the years through the 90s. And God's always touched me real powerful. You may feel the power of God, the dunamis power, like a, like a holy electricity or something. You feel light. How have you experienced that? But I'll never forget one time this man prayed over me. And it had to do with a mantle. But I remember going out and just being under the glory of God for a long time. I don't know. Um, people told me it was at least an hour. I don't remember. But I was just in heaven on earth. But the glory, it was this weighty glory presence. All right, so let me read about this. Because this, this glory subject is really on my heart tonight. I really feel God's wanting to increase that in River of Life. So one, some of the things you'll see in regards to the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me just read this. Leviticus twenty three thirty nine. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, and you'll rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year, it shall be a perpetual statue throughout your generations, and you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. I want you to notice that, booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord, the appointed times of the Lord. So these are the Lord's feast, not Israel's feast. And just like it said here, and I'm going to show you, these things will be observed throughout all generations. This isn't going to go away. But anyway, one of the things you see there is the lulav. Do you guys remember I, I bought that last year so that you guys could see it? All right. I've learned that, it's, you know, getting up and talking about things, people don't remember. I'm just saying. You ask them a week later, and they're like, oh, I... Yeah, I remember something. But whenever you actually do it together, you, you, you know, they hold something in their hand, you participate, um, it is remembered. So that's why I do a lot of these things. But I bought this so you guys could see it. But the, the lulav is to be waved, and there's four, it's the four species. You remember there was that, what looked like a lemon, the etrog, which is a lemon-like citrus fruit. The lulav is the palm branch, hadas myrtle branch, arva is the willow tree branch. And they're to be waved before the Lord. Now, interesting, when Jesus came on the earth and who rode that donkey into Jerusalem, what were the people doing? They were waving palm branches before him. They were waving the lulav, and they were worshiping him 
as the coming king. And so this is going to continue, and you're going to see this in the millennial reign of Christ, which I'll show you. And of course, people can build some kind of a sukkah, a booth, which is just a flimsy shelter that you're supposed to, um, well, you can live in it, or, you know, but at least eat in it. But it's to remember how the children of Israel, how God was with them, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those that wandered throughout the land. They lived in tents. And um, as Israel came out and they were in the wilderness, they dwelled in tents. And it's to remember how God had um, been with them through those times, but also how God gave the tabernacle Moses. And not only that, but how God wants to tabernacle with us. That, to me, is the whole point of all of this, is that God dwelling with man, being in us and with us. And so, so as I said earlier, the purging of the gates, it is the responsibility of pastors and leaders to, to be able to see the heavens open above and to persistently pray until those gates are purged and there's an open heaven where God's presence can come dwell among man. It is the responsibility of leaders to do that. And there's these times that I've, I've talked about with the Hebrew roots called the slichot times of prayer. And all that is, slichot means just pardon us. So it's like a, a time of forgive us, Lord. We repent, we get things right. And we know that around the fall feast, that's really strong, but I would say it needs to be in the spring feast too. But think about it. This is something God laid on my heart. It's something I, I'm thankful for River of Life by and large. I've always felt, for the most part, felt a lot of support about these things. Now, I thank you guys for that. God will bless you for that. But as we come together and we pray together and we fast and we unify as a church and we're really sincerely repenting of anything that we need to, a special offering unto the Lord, everybody was just giving to God during this time financially. But it was a time to unify in prayer and fasting and repentance. And we all, since we've done this together, everybody's going to remember this. I mean, we had a, a, a powerful service, which I called a deep consecration service, where we, we really took communion together. We anointed everybody. We had a, a time, a baptismal service for those that wanted to participate, and most people did. It was just a deep consecration unto God. And let me tell you something. When we've done that, What's happened is, is that it's helped to open the heavens and it's helped to purge those gates so that the glory will increase. And since that time, you would have to be pretty spiritually dull to not notice the change that's been in this church. There's been a significant increase of God's presence and freedom. But it's because of these times that we come together and unify. And just like... The word holy, let me explain holy and righteous because they're not the same thing, though they're used interchangeably. But holy has to do with being set apart. So the best example I can give is this. Picture that there was an individual that purchased two identical iPads. But one of the iPads he was just going to use for work, and that's all it was for. You know, he basically would probably leave it in his office at work. But the other iPad, the only thing he was going to use it for was going to be for the ministry. It was going to be for like uh, preaching and studying and, and um, you know, whatever, studying the scriptures and, and delivering sermons or whatever. And the only thing that that was used for was for the things of God. 
And so one of those iPads, he prayed over that. It's set apart now as being holy for God's purpose. But the other one's not. Same iPad, but one of them set apart. Holy means to be set apart. The same verb that God used when he said in the beginning, he separated the light and the darkness. The same verb is the same word used when God's talking about separating his people from the people of this world. He wants us to be set apart wholly indifferent. And so that is what holy means. And during the Old Testament times, there was, there was priests that had the priestly garments like you see there, and they were wholly set apart to be used in tabernacle service. You know, he couldn't go home in his fancy garments and be flipping some hamburgers in his backyard, hanging out, you know, and just joking around. That wasn't what it was for. I mean, that would have been pretty dangerous during those times to be playing around like that. So he he would go there to the tabernacle, take off the street clothes, put on his garments. Because Why? Because those things were set apart unto God. What I'm trying to say is, is God wants his people to be set apart. And you can set apart a place. This place is set apart as holy unto God. Righteous is a lifestyle. So once we're set apart, God's wanting us to live a righteous lifestyle. So there's things that we will do and not do. Where we used to be using substances and abusing substances, now we quit doing that. And now instead of going out to the bars and clubs on Friday, Saturday night, now we go to church. You know, we live a righteous life. We're witnessing to people. We're, we're tithing. We're, you know, praying. There's things that we do and things that we don't do to live a righteous life before God. But it comes out of being holy, being set apart. And so, listen, those people that are set apart unto God, they're holy. And people that will set apart their life, their home, their ministry, they set it apart unto God as holy. That is where the glory, the manifest presence of God, will really come with great power. I mean, great force. However you want it, whatever word you really strong, intense. <laughs> God will visit places sometimes, but there's a difference between a visitation and a habitation. There's a big difference. For God to come dwell like he did in the tabernacle, and that was the thing. Moses had to go through that tabernacle and make sure everything was right, but he anointed it, he set it apart. And once it was holy unto God, think about it for a minute. You have people contributing to this. They're bringing their, their different skins and stuff they got from Egypt, a bunch of different gold and all of this to the tabernacle, um, oil that they pressed. And they're bringing it. And this is just stuff that they were bringing out of their closet and their cupboards, if you will. I know they lived in tents, but just work with me, okay? Stuff they, they ripped off their camel, whatever, right? They bring it there to Moses, and this is just regular stuff. And all of a sudden, he's got a couple guys, Bezalel, and they begin to work together to, to create all this. And they fashion it, and they form it, and they create the tabernacle according to what God showed Moses. And once they do that, this same stuff, that a lot of it was probably plundered from Egypt. Okay, a lot of this stuff now is there. Moses goes through and he prays over it. He anoints it. He sets it apart. And now it becomes holy unto God. It's separated. And the glory comes in an awesome way. 
And that's my heart about this. So the reason why I did a teaching on communion Hebrew roots is because I really believe that the Hebrew roots do play a role in Christianity that's very important. It's very important for us to understand the Bible. It's, and it's also very important for us to understand the ways of God. And I believe it also has a lot to do with God's manifest presence coming among us. Because unfortunately, a lot of places could have that, but they don't. And we all know that. And so just like you can set things apart, here's the last thing. You can set time. You can set a day apart. And that's what was going on with the Sabbath. You know, they had the other six days, but on the seventh day, the, the woman in the house would light some candles. They would set that day apart as being a holy day unto God. So you can set times apart. And let me just tell you that these things are not just going away. Some people may not like, for whatever reason, they don't like maybe a shofar. They don't like um, a feast day. They don't like a banner. Well, they're going to have to get used to it because, quite honestly, this is not going away. When Jesus comes, all of this is going to be amplified tremendously. There's going to be a lot of banners flying everywhere. You're going to be hearing shofars. I'm just telling you, Jesus is going to keep these times. And let me show it to you because it's in the Bible. In Zechariah 14, 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Oh, man. I'm just ready for that now. I look at some of the stupid stuff going on. And I know, I know end time prophecy, so I just keep my focus on the Lord. And I know that these things must happen. Okay? But you just shake your head. And just seriously, I mean, when you thought that it reached the, the stupidest of the stupid, somebody comes up with something else. And you're just shaking your head like, seriously? But in that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. The Lord is going to rule the whole world with an iron scepter. He's going to, when he comes, the blood of the enemies of Israel will be at a horse's bridle. He's going to slaughter the enemies of Israel. When he comes, he's going to rule and reign. He's going to separate the sheep and goat nations. The goat nations will be thrown into hell. He's coming to clean house, buddy. And you better make sure that you're, you're right with him. He came the first time as the lamb, but he's coming the next time as a lion. And the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. People will live in it and they will no longer be a curse. You think about the curse that came on humanity because of Adam and Eve. This is going to roll back off when Christ comes. The last Adam, when he comes, that curse is going to come off. For Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague that the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. That to me, if I had to guess, and I'm just guessing because who knows. Something may, but I think that's a nuclear warhead. And people are standing there and they just dissipate you know they're just fried a lot 
This is precede, This is right before Jesus comes. I'm telling you, things are going to get serious. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand. And the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of the other. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold, silver, garments in great abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and the cattle that will be in those camps. So right before Jesus rules and reigns, things are going to get pretty intense. There probably will be nuclear exchanges in the Middle East. And as Israel is being surrounded and attacked, and it's kind of like, all right, now prison rules, right? <laughs> and so they're just going to start pushing the buttons, you know. And, I mean, nukes are going to start flying. But God's going to be with Israel, and they're going to survive it. And they'll be victorious. Our verse 16, then it will come about that any who are left in the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year. Now, this is after the Lord comes, and he establishes his reign. <clears throat> they will come year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And to celebrate the Feast of Booths, which is Tabernacles or Sukkot. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If a family of Egypt does not go up or enter, there will be no rain will fall on them. It will be a plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So, these things are going on into the millennial reign. I think the reason why the emphasis, though, is put on the Feast of Booths is because that's the feast that's fulfilled at the millennial reign. That's the feast that's fulfilled when Jesus comes to dwell in tabernacle here for a thousand years. But all of these other things are still going to be going on. Just mark my word. All right. So tonight I want to pray for people. We're going to, I'm going to pray here in just a moment, okay? The glory is just really strong on me right now, so I'm sorry if I'm jumbled up a little. But we're going to pray for the glory. That God's weighty manifest presence come. And the humble and the hungry, I believe in God, will really saturate your life. And leave the recordings going for me just a second. If y'all would, just look this way. Listen, the glory of the Lord that's here and the glory of the Lord that's here in River of Life can be in your home. It needs to be in your home. The glory, you know, if people would even, you know, play the services from here in their home and say, Lord, let this glory come in, I believe that it would. But the glory that's here needs to be coming into our homes. My wife and I pray together at night. I know I've said this a lot, but it's important to me, and I'm trying to say it to stir this up, and people have faith for this. But the glory of the Lord, this is not an exaggeration. People think, oh, he's just... The same glory that I feel here at church will come in and settle in that house and settle on us. God wants his glory to be upon his people. And the, the, I believe the greatest way the glory comes is because of the blood. So if people will take the Lord's Supper, if they'll apply the blood to their life and to their home, that the blood of Jesus the glory will come because of the blood, okay? So put the emphasis in your home on the blood. So, Lord, we thank you for tonight. I thank you, Lord, for the power of the blood of Jesus and the awesome glory of your presence. And, Lord, as we pray tonight, I'm asking that your glory come upon your people. 
and there'll be a visitation of your glory because in these latter days, I believe the Bible says there's going to be thick darkness on the earth, but the glory will be upon your people, and we're going to need it. Isaiah says the glory, Isaiah 4, I believe, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, the glory will be a defense. It'll be a shade for the heat of the day. And Lord, that your glory will envelop your people and seal us off in divine health and protection. And where Obed-Edom had the ark command the glory, there was prosperity. There's going to be supernatural provision, supernatural health, and supernatural protection because of the glory. Don't put your faith in the things of the world. Some people put their faith in other things, and that's really an idol. But their faith in things like um, exercise or nutrition or different things to keep them healthy. The Lord is the source of health and long life. I don't care what you say. You can argue with me all day long. That's what the Bible says. And I look to him as my source. He's the source of my life, the source of my protection, the source of my health. It was paid for at the cross. So, Lord, we thank you for it. Come in power in Jesus' name. All right, let's go ahead and shut down recordings. We're going to pray for people. If you want the glory of the Lord in your life, agree with me tonight as we pray that God's glory begin to invade your life like never before. It's easy to pray in the glory. You know, where an atmosphere is sterile, it can be challenging to pray, but where the glory is. And the glory can be in your life. I remember one time, there was a missionary. I went down to Mexico, and I was helping him out. And he had been there for years. And he was just awesome. I mean, this was an older man. He just loved God with all of his heart. And he had been out there with his wife. They started out with the two of them in a backpack walking around. Okay? You're talking about really living the Bible. And there was a strong anointing on this man. And he had told me about times where they had great waves of revival sweep through. And they'd see people come in and just being saved, healed, and delivered. It was awesome. Um, but he was telling me, he says the strangest thing, though. He said, for whatever reason, God decided to do this. He had this facility he had built there, and others helped him build it over the years. But there was a room. Were any of y'all with me about this room? Were you there when I did this? Anyway, he said there was this one room where God decided to deposit his manifest presence in an awesome way, and he does not know why. But he knows that if he goes in there, he can pray. You know, the glory is so strong, it's easy to pray and all that. And he showed me the room. I mean, you just walk in, it's like, Oh, I mean, just out of nowhere. The glory is in that room. And I don't know why. He didn't know why. And um, anyway, so there, he said there was different groups of young people that would come through. And some of them, you know, teenagers and stuff. He said there was this one girl that was just kind of a brat. You know, she was kind of snotty and, and, and just kind of mean. And he could see that. And so he was walking along and he said, hey, you know, he said, I want you to see this room. And so... And he said he, he showed her the room and she goes in and he said he's just watching her and she began to cry. Tears started coming down and the Holy Spirit began to break down all that meanness <laughs> out of her. But when you come into the presence of God, things start changing. Mean people get nice. <laughs> Sick people get healed. All right, let's go.